Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Episode 59, Patrick McManus Interview. everybody and welcome back to sci-fi fidelity this is mike and dave with you once again and we are here with an interview edition of the podcast and we're excited to share with you a executive producer interview that not only reflects on a show that has recently concluded but also one that is still in development and that is patrick mcmanus executive producer of happy on sci-fi and he's got a few things in the works for universal content productions, UCP, uh, because he signed an overall deal with them. So really excited to almost as much to talk to him about those things that don't even exist yet, Dave, as we are about happy. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. So let me just give him a quick intro and then we'll dive into our discussion with him. If you don't know Patrick McManus, he basically started as co-executive producer on the short-lived Marco Polo. And then he jumped on board Sci-Fi's Happy, which was a very quirky show in which a uh, detective can see an imaginary flying unicorn. <laughs> and don't ask, you'd have to dive into it pretty deep to uh, figure out why that is. But Happy was co-created by Brian Taylor and Grant Morrison, who did the original comic. As a result of that show's success, Universal Content Productions, as I mentioned, signed Patrick for an overall writing deal, which has led to him being at the helm for upcoming adaptations for Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five and the true crime podcast, Dr. Death. So we spoke to Patrick just before the happy season two finale, but be warned, there are a few minor spoilers for that show between the three-minute mark and the 13-minute mark, especially since that show has concluded since then, since we actually ta- spoke to him. So here's our interview with Patrick McManus that we had with him just a couple of weeks ago. Well, we're here with Patrick McManus, who's executive producer of Happy on Sci-Fi, but he's got some stuff in the works that we wanted to talk to him about, too, in addition to the zaniness that is happy. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Okay. Now, obviously, we want to hear all about Happy and the other projects you've got in development, but I have to ask you, because you've been linked with the development of Kurt Vonnegut Jr.'s classic novel, Slaughterhouse-Five, and... I grew up with Vonnegut, read virtually everything he wrote into the 90s, time travel lover. And and with Billy Pilgrim, it's not the traditional time travel because he becomes unstuck in time. What can you tell us about the status of the project, how Slaughterhouse even got into the development queue and maybe even any names that are attached? Yeah, this is uh, you're stepping on my favorite chord, as, uh, as I like to say. I um 
you know, Slaughterhouse uh, is still actively in development right now with UCP. We are in the process of figuring out exactly where the best home for it is, but everybody at Universal has been extraordinarily supportive of me on it. As it relates to uh, attachments, we aren't there yet, but I'll say that, you know, I, I like you, was, a, was and still, I still am a huge Vonnegut fan, and when Slaughterhouse came to me, I, I thought I, I knew everything about it. I mean, at, at the time, all I, I'd read it when I was 16 and thought that I, I knew what the world really was about. And after rereading it a, a dozen or so times in the last year or so, I, I realized that it really is a book that you don't fully understand until you're a little bit older in life. And even then, I think you're being a little bit, there's a little bit of hubris involved in thinking that you really fully understand it. But I, I'll tell you right now that, that I, I find it to be as a 42-year-old, I find it to be an extraordinarily impactful uh, work. And especially now we're on the 50th anniversary of it. I think now more than ever, we're at a place where, um, where people, I think, need to revisit it. Uh, and for those of us who have never visited it, I'm hoping that this TV show is going to, is going to open up some, some new fans of Vonnegut at the same time. Yeah, I think it's almost, in a sense, kind of like the Philip K. Dick, where you can tap so many different properties and it seems like Gail Ann Hurd is, is doing that a little bit, not just with this project, but some others in the works. So we'll get back to Vonnegut in a minute. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I just want, want to talk to talk about Happy for a second, sure. because this is one of these shows that, I'll tell you, it competes with the short-lived Blood Drive, which yeah. Dave and I loved, as the most depraved show on sci-fi. And uh, you seem to have a lot of fun with Easter in season two, the same way season one was Christmas themed. What did you find useful about centering the show around these holidays? Well, you know, listen, I have to be honest. So much of this comes from the demented minds of, of Brian Taylor and, and, and Grant Morrison. I uh, more often than not, I found myself clawing onto, onto their coattails and hanging on for dear life. But from the very beginning, when I got involved with it, they had said that they wanted each season to be to revolve around a different holiday. And, you know, as it relates to season two specifically, the fact that it's about Easter wasn't just because we were trying to pick one of the, the more, for lack of a better phrase, boring holidays that's out there uh, and, and try to figure out a new way of, of distorting it and destroying it. But we also felt like it, it spoke a lot to Nick Sachs's journey. You know, like if, if season one was about him finding that he has a family and that he actually has a reason to live, it made a lot of sense for us to try to figure out a way to um, to resurrect Nick and, and have him attempt to find new life, uh, only to then realize, I think, as, as you know, viewers have now have now watched season two, realize that the only way for him to actually be able to save his family uh, is by embracing what he once was, uh, this thing that he tried to kill, the, you know, as a hitman and as a drug addicted and booze addicted guy he he tried to suppress all of that at the beginning of season two only to then realize that the only way to really win was to was to find new life by being the man that he once was um so i I think that in terms of the writer's room we found it to be extraordinarily helpful to look at season two as a form of resurrection for all of our characters and i think that there's a way of kind of delving into that theme for both our bad guys and our good guys um for mary who who we think was a was a mild mannered real estate agent, but was really was really still a cop digging into thing in, into everything that went on for Haley. I think Haley, more than any any character, went through a, a real resurrection this season. Smoothie, Sunny, um, on and on and on. Each of our characters was resurrected throughout this season, so it was it was a very helpful line to tell. I like it. 
So, well, you know, you mentioned the writers' room, and I'm always fascinated how every show's writers' room seems to operate differently. So, I'm curious how yours works. Is Grant Morrison who the listeners may or may not know is the creator of the comic on which the series is based. Is he involved on a daily basis, less frequently? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, Grant was in the writer's room the entire time uh, for season two and, and obviously for season one. I think it's impossible for us to not use <laughs> use Grant as the utmost uh, resource for everything that we do. Interestingly, along those lines, Christopher Maloney, our star, uh, was in the writer's room every single day as well, and for both seasons. And oftentimes, you know, that as, as writers, that can be a little bit off-putting is not the right word, but scary uh, to have the star of your series be in the writer's room because you want it to be this space where you can explore and, and, and hope that the star of the show isn't putting his egotistical thumb on the scale in any way, shape, or form in terms of the storytelling. And the truth of the matter is, is that the combination of Brian Taylor, Graham Morrison, and, and Chris Maloney in the writer's room is what made this show as successful from a, on a creative side as it is. Um, they were instrumental and vital. Instrumental is not even the right word. They were vital to getting our story to work the way that it works. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that each of us was grateful to have all of them in, in the room at all times. Well, one of the things I liked about season one is that evolution you mentioned into season two, where you think that Nick Sachs is going to have an arc of redemption, but it doesn't seem to be that at all, because I I like that you said he was resurrected and realized that he just needed to embrace his dark side. But what about Happy? Like, how do we explain Happy's presence when you're embracing the corrupt side of the world? Well, what's interesting about that, you know, it's it's. Uh, I feel like in like a jackass for not uh, mentioning Happy when uh, when I was rattling off all the characters in our show. But uh, <laughs> but I mean, listen, my my mom and wife would support the fact that I am a jackass. So uh, so there you go. Um, <laughs> I um, you know, Happy goes through his own uh, resurrection of of, of sorts, his own death and resurrection of sorts this season. We couch it in the season along the lines of his. Uh, weirdly of puberty really that that happy go that that by him removing himself from Haley because he had to because Haley stopped quote-unquote believing in him and attaching himself to Nick who does believe in him happy begins to be influenced by this this new best friend that he has in in Nick's acts and by doing so or in through doing so the only thing that we could imagine is, is that he has to go through his his own adolescence this season and he comes out the other end of this adolescence not just darker in and of himself. We don't, you know, we have a lot of fun with the fact that Happy, that Happy has a girlfriend uh, this season, that he loses his virginity this season, <laughs> that he begins to grow feathers and hair in places that he didn't expect them to, to grow. But that also, <laughs> like, he himself becomes a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit darker throughout the course of, of this season. And in doing so, interestingly, by coming out the other end of this, this dark side, this adolescence, this puberty, he actually, as we now know, uh, is able to exist unto himself. And in that existence, he finds his own superpower. And that superpower is, is that, that he's able to bring love to the world. And that is, that stands in direct contrast to, um, to Orcus. And, and as we now know, Nick, who is working with Orcus by the end of the season. So we, we set up at the end of the season, obviously we, we put our, our chess pieces in place where we realize that happy and Nick are going to come to blows in, in season three, because they're on opposite sides of, 
of the spectrum, dark and, and light. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Well, you know, one of the things about shows, Michael and I generally agree that we love production design, and obviously that's a huge part of Happy. The other is fight choreography, where I'm generally more of a fan of the shorter, tightly choreographed fight scenes so for you guys what what goes into making these elements of the show you know the production and the fight scenes yeah because it's based on a comic book and it's got that comic book like flavor to it they're they're over the top in places so you know how do you go about putting all that together well, I mean, honestly, so much of everything that makes this show successful, and I will keep ringing this bell until so, so people stop listening to me, is, is Brian Taylor, both from the storytelling side of things, uh, obviously, to the, to the, directing, the directing side of things, but, but also to the, to the fights. I mean, and, and it, Brian has got a fingerprint, uh, as we know from all of his films, on his action. And all of it begins and ends with, with Brian concocting a new way and usually again, for lack of a better word, zany way of conducting a fight. Uh, and he, from beginning, middle, and end, he is intimately involved in every aspect of that fight. And, and those fights, you know, using season two just as, as an example and, and kind of like um, you, you think about the fight uh, that takes place at the end of the first episode, which is like the, the, the blood skating fight where there where you know, <laughs> oh, Nick, there, there's, yeah, right? There's just gut, gore and guts all over the floor and Nick can barely keep any traction. That was all Brian. Like Brian in the room was like, I want to do something where there, where you know, he, he just can't keep his traction on the on the blood, and and the fight just takes place from that. That's all him using the fight with the um, you know at Sunny Shine's mansion where uh, he tases everybody and they go into like a chorus line, kick line. That that's all Brian Taylor. You know, even the our I mean, using our opening with the exploding nun. Brian literally came out of the bathroom, I believe, into the writer's room and said, I think I want to want to blow up some nuns. 
uh, yeah, figure that out. And, and we all sat there going, okay, God, clearly that was a good uh, bathroom trip for you. Let's figure out how to blow up the nuns. Uh, so, you know, and, and so it's, it's all, all of that is Brian Taylor. And again, if you compare his films to, to this TV show, you can see, you can see his fingerprints all over it. And he, he really is, one of uh, you know I, I he's on spectrum someplace uh i, I don't know <laughs> where he lands on the spectrum but but we are all lucky that he does uh because he is uh, he is an exceptional genius when it comes to that okay we're going to switch gears though into some of the projects and in development uh including dr death but i want to ask another question about slaughterhouse five because sure. it sounds like an exciting challenge as an adaptation because while happy has its own elements of satire about the depths of human depravity. Vonnegut also has plenty to say about the nature of war and other heavier themes. So how do you tackle issues of tone and humor before you even start writing the scripts? Like, does that have to come into play when you get to the writer's room initially? Yeah. I mean, listen, I, 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 I'm, I'm both lucky and, uh, and I think cursed uh, to have been given this project when UCP originally asked me if I wanted to do it. It was at the very beginning of my career with them. I was working on happy season one and they were like, okay, well, we want to, we want you to do something else for us. What do you have? And I gave them like a laundry list of 24 shows that I had come up that were my own original ideas that I desperately have wanted to do over the course of the years. And they said, well, those are all nice and everything, but do you, what do you think about Slaughterhouse five? And I said, well, as a book, I think it's fantastic. What are you asking me? They said, well, do you want to create it? And I immediately jumped at it and said, of course I do. And then I sat down and really thought about what I had done and realized that I may have just shot myself in the face. <laughs> like, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you do Vonnegut? And so the, the, the first thing that I did was I sat down and I reread as much as I possibly could uh, of Vonnegut, trying desperately to figure out some way in which I could um, come close to copying his voice. And that's the best that you can do, right? The best you can do is hope that you might be able to, to, to copy it. And so, so much of Vonnegut, as you know, as fans of him is, is, uh, rooted in in his dark absurdist humor, and so after I, I tried to sponge up as much Vonnegut as I could, I then sat down and wrote a draft of Slaughterhouse. Just just wrote it, and then went back and attempted to to lace in some of his voice as best as I could manage it. And, and I think that we, I think I I did my damn level best. Uh, and like, like I said, I think that's that's the most that you can hope for when you're trying to pay an homage to one of the greatest voices in the history of, of literature. But yeah, I mean. I realized that one of the, the, the biggest challenges of it was taking essentially, you know, a, a little less than 300 page book and expanding it into what could potentially become 60 hours of storytelling. And, and so a lot of it was me looking for little clues within the book as to how I could expand the world um, while still not uh, offending everyone and anyone that is, that is, that is a fan of, of the work and, and, and his world. And so that's, that's what I set out to do. And I, and I think that we, you know, we created a Bible for it that is, that is fundamentally linked to every aspect of, of that book. And we, we do leap between the 20s and 19, and all the way to 1976 and back and forth within the pilot itself. And I, I, I hope that we've done it in a way that Vonnegut would have been proud of. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll see when we finally get to air it. All right. Well, Mike mentioned Dr. Death, which you also have in development. And what, what are the special challenges in bringing a podcast to television and, what is it about the story of Dr. Death that attracted you as a project to develop into a series in the first place? Sure. Well, listen, the, the, I actually found adapting Dr. Death to be 
relatively easy, quote unquote. And what I mean by that is that I don't I don't find it, uh, adapting a podcast to be any different than adapting an article or uh, or a book or a foreign series to an American series. It's kind of the same thing uh, to me. The hardest part, and this is this is going to come off as a joke, but I really do mean it, uh, is that I am a relatively sane individual in life, but I am an extraordinary hypochondriac. I just am. I think I am dying of everything uh, and anything under the sun. And so when I first was given this podcast, they just gave me the first two episodes to listen to about four months before it aired. And I was sitting in my office. We were, we were shooting Happy Season 2. And I was sitting in my office listening to this podcast, staring out my window, looking at the Empire State Building. And my production designer came in without me hearing her. And and then she knocked and loudly. And I just looked around. I guess I gave her this the nastiest of looks. Because she goes, oh, it's a pleasure to see you too. And I said, honestly, if you were listening to what I was listening to, you would just keep yourself, you would try your best not to, not to just throw up everywhere. It, it, the, the podcast affected me so intimately uh it made me want to just take up you know uh, acupuncture and eastern herbs and spices i i didn't ever want to go to the doctor again. <laughs> um but it, so in, in and of itself it, it is it is in you know so much of that podcast is such a compelling story unto itself that the bad guy in, in dr christopher dunch and I, I just did air quotes i know that your your listeners can't see my air quotes but the the bad guy <laughs> is actually an extraordinarily complex person and, and the question hanging over the entire series and the podcast itself is whether or not he was he's sociopathic and he did it on purpose or whether or not he was uh, you know uh, a narcissist who believed that he was actually capable of, of of doing these things and he just kept messing up these surgeries i mean out of 38 surgeries 35 ended up in in some semblance of either quadriplegic paraplegic or, or, or death or just or just lifelong pain and that, those are the lucky ones um, and then to have this guy be brought down, not by the police, but by two of his own, two fellow surgeons, a vascular surgeon and another neurosurgeon, made that story so compelling to me. And, and one of my, probably my favorite movie of all time, well, my favorite movie of all time is Armageddon, but that's, that, I don't like to tell people that. Uh, my, my real, the one that I tell people to make them think that I'm smart it, uh, is All the President's Men. And I, I really do mean that. I love that movie. And it, it, it smacked of that to me in, in many weird ways, was that it wasn't the police or the FBI or the CIA or whatever that brought them down. It was these two reporters. In this case, it's these two doctors. So I loved that aspect of it. And I also loved the, the underlying theme of it, which is, that, which is that it isn't about a bad guy doctor run amok. Uh, you know, it, it's ultimately about a system and how a system has you know, protected this guy in many ways. I hate to make the comparison, but it, it's, it's there in many ways, the same way that the church protected priests. They didn't want the bad press. And so they just kept transferring Dr. Dunch from hospital to hospital and, and didn't do anything to stop him. And so, you know, should we have a uh, season two of Dr. Death? Uh, we are, you know, it is an anthology and we're looking at kind of season two that would, that would follow um, how systems ultimately betray the public and let the public down. And so we've got a, any number of uh, different areas that we can, that we can pursue uh, along those lines. Should we have a season two? All right. Well, Patrick, we welcome uh, the journey that's about to, to be ahead of us. And as you descend into darkness in many ways with all these different <laughs> projects. Thank you. So thanks very much for talking to us. Guys, thank you so much. You guys have always been, uh, from the beginning of, of, of Happy, we, I've always loved reading everything Dan and Geek has to say for us. So thank you so much for being supporters.
All right. So I'm very excited, Dave. I don't know about you, but that only whetted my appetite for the Slaughterhouse Five adaptation. I think it's in good hands. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, he loves the book. Yeah. But to me, I think he was right in saying that Slaughterhouse Five is something that isn't really understood fully until you're an adult. But how many of us read that book when we were teenagers? I think oh, there's quite a few of us. <laughs> sure. And I know I haven't read it in, in decades, I think it's fair <laughs> to say. So can't wait for those projects, uh, Dr. Death included. But what do we got going on next week? We're actually going back into a theme that we seemed to have for June in a way without meaning to. Yeah. So we're going to take a look at Good Omens on Amazon Prime Video, a six episode miniseries based on Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's novel. And, and this miniseries dropped on May 31st, as I said, on Amazon. And it follows a demon and an angel who have been on earth since the beginning of time yeah. and they start their experiences doing what you think they should be doing. The demon tempting Eve in the garden of Eden and the angel trying to watch over the humans, but things don't exactly play out the way they think. Uh, David Tennant plays the demon, Michael Sheen, the angel. It's just a great show. Yep. The novel was published in 1990, right when I graduated high school and it was definitely one of my favorites at that time. So I was very anxious to see this adaptation. One of the most faithful adaptations I have ever seen. So that's going to be a great discussion that we'll have. Uh, do a little teaser of the first couple of episodes if you haven't caught up with that uh, miniseries yet. And then in our spoiler zone, we'll talk about the entire six episode miniseries. So that's next Sunday. So stick around for that. But that's going to be it for this interview edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. But in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. Be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or in an email, which you can send to Sci-Fi Fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.